Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome once again to Hollywood RX. The doctors are in. How are you, Dr. D? I'm doing great. Excellent. I'm giddy. I'm positively giddy. You always seem to start off these shows giddy, excited to talk. <laughs> and by the end, <laughs> we're all worn out. I'm a broken man by the end. I'm sitting here still reverberating, even though I saw this thing, you know, a couple of days ago. Uh, what's what's your situation? Where How are you vibrating? I found it to be a nerve-wracking, stomach-turning. I'm, I'm very mixed about it. I'm... It disturbed me, reviled me in the right ways. It also had me on the edge of my seat because I found it really impossible to see where, predict where it was going, which I really liked. There were a couple of huge tur- surprising turns. Where it's like, oh, okay, now we're on this train. Right, right. Um, and yet when the ending came up, well, why don't you talk first? Go ahead. Yeah. Ooh, tease it. I like that. Let's not start with the ending. I and I felt in much I felt much the same way you did that I was um, uh, gripped by the sort of unpredictability. My I was nauseated. Uh, I'm not even sure if it was in the good way, and you know felt felt like I wanted to run from the theater, but also felt compelled to stay. Uh, yeah, you know, nailed yeah. to my seat. So. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was in in a lot of ways it was really smart. It, it was rough around a couple of edges, direction wise, but the performances were fantastic for a first film. It's great. It's you know this is obviously someone who's very informed about horror films that not classic like the old Universal horror films like Frankenstein, but right the ones that the ones where the horror is enmeshed in everyday reality so well that yes. it, it gets under your skin. And it goes places. It it start it takes it has the nerve to take on some uh <laughs> some really interesting things. And I felt like they they did not uh casually toss aside character feelings, motivations or concerns in a lot of scenes. This was a very real movie. Great performances. Tony Collette, Gabriel Byrne, yeah. Cool. Well, let's start to, there's a lot to unpack here. So let's, Mm -hmm. uh, let's start unpacking. And if ever there was a spoiler laden episode, this is it. So Mm. if you, if you were only thinking about seeing Hereditary, stop listening right now. Yeah, this is, I was thinking exactly the same thing. Like it went, it ran through my head to say, hey, listen, if you haven't seen it, shut this off. And then I just started debating, well, how many people listen to us who haven't seen these movies? And But it's, it still warrants being said. How many people listen yeah. to it, period? <laughs> well, you have a you have a point there. Uh, there's, there's, there's uh, <laughs> you know, that's, that's the big mystery. Um, that just because you started by saying classic I, uh, and how sort of everyday reality type yeah, you know the comment you just made. I wanted to bring up as an example. You were saying, you know, not like uh, Jason and not the slashing, so on and so forth. This is a, this is you. You meant more like a classic psychological. Horror. Yes, yes, exactly. And in a way, I think uh, Rosemary's Baby might fall into that category. Well, Rosemary's Baby, I mean, was you know, by the end, yeah. I mean, there was right. a lot of it that's can be traced back to rosemary's baby right but you i mean but uh you can you can reference t- rosemary's babies uh structurally in the story but this was also tonally uh similar in in some of its slice of everyday life type well maybe but there was sunshine in some scenes in rosemary's baby <laughs> unlike here where this reminded i mean this was so i felt so stark in its overall look and design it reminded me of some but hold but hold on hang on a second what? hang on a okay. second though. hold on okay. stop stop i want to go back and defend my rosemary's baby because what it, 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 i wasn't it, i was i sense, was i was agreeing with you about rosemary no, no 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 i understand but i just want to i want to elaborate that thought which okay. is that Anne dowd in this movie in hereditary 
is for all intents and purposes playing the Ruth Gordon part. Older, um, very gentle, very, you know, sweet and a little funny and so on and so forth, nurturing type character. And so, and come to think of it, you know, John Cassavetes is not that different an actor in a way from, from Gabriel Byrne, just in a, in a larger sense. They both have that same naturalistic style. Yeah, they're yes, not... Yes, exactly. So, him. I mean, I feel like well before you get to at the end of the movie going, oh, this is little Rosemary's Baby's like, I feel like it was there early and often. Well, that's interesting because I had been, for some reason, I had been thinking of this more as a... I, and I don't know why. Well, no, I do know why. I was thinking of this more as like a, a haunting story... That it was more about the interaction with the spirit world and the real world. So I wasn't like, yes, in terms of the... Almost like a ghost story or a... Yeah, exactly. So, I I mean, I did not see it coming until she pulls out the book. Mm, Yeah. You know, even the first time she goes into that box and she picks up the book about spiritualism. Mm Mm-hmm. I wasn't thinking it was going to go the way of cult. Right. You know what I mean? Like I was, that, that was still working with my theory about the movie. Because at first I thought, okay, the daughter's possessed by something, right? Mm-hmm. And then she gets killed and I'm like, oh, fuck. So now it's him who's going to be, what, haunted, possessed, what? Right. I thought it was just, it was coming down that way. But uh, I really, really liked the scenes where Tony Collette would go into these expositions about the family. I found very, I found just fantastic. The, the clue dropping of, of the backstory and how it had you, you know, or it had me at least thinking certain things about the dysfunction of that family. You know, not nothing even remotely like an evil grandmother, V.C. Andrews, <laughs> Rosemary's Baby yeah, kind of yeah. way. Do you know what I mean? Like, it was just... Right, right. Uh, from the very beginning, it had it had this creepiness and a sense of dread. Yeah. And that was independent from seeing any shadowy figures or just... It just felt almost like, um, like suffocating. Well, let's just even that first shot. Is such a such a terrific fun way to enter the story, where you're pushing in on one of her, you know, a collection of her miniatures, and suddenly you're in a room, and then it's it's a real room rather than than yeah. you think you're in a dollhouse with a, and it's it's the kid sleeping, and so you you start on him, yeah, and you and you end and we on end him. on him. Um, so he's almost very quietly because her Tony Collette's part is so showy, almost showy in a bad way. I, I can't, no, no, no. I can't quite figure out. It's not even quite scenery chewing, but it was somehow damn close to it without quite doing it. That is true. Yes, that is because true. She's, I think because she's such a good actress. But she, yeah, yes, yeah. she is excellent. But she does, you know, that is a specialty of hers. I think. And her her face is just like this exquisite mask of all of those emotions but certainly you know sadness and confusion and grief yeah there's so much piled into her onto her face into her face she communicates so much with without having the need to say any words that when she does start saying words it it's there's there's so many extra tools that she has to um, yeah layer on subtleties and things like that but I think you were about to talk about maybe you were about to mention her her trip to the to the you know twelve step sort of grief program to, to to the grief counseling group. Yes, you know, I always uh, I always lament to my wife, who is a diehard Criminal Minds fan. I'm always mm-hmm. lamenting to her how reductive and simplistic most dialogue is. There, there, there's no extra, it's like every sentence is just the purest sentence of the information that needs to be conveyed. There are no little, there's no little extras like, yeah, I know what you mean. You know, just the everyday sort of hems and haws that people have in conversations. 
Yeah. And I immediately felt like this movie was the complete opposite. This is like what I, I'm like, aha, you see, it can be done. <laughs> but, you know, there was a very naturalistic way about how everyone talked and talked to each other. Yeah, uh, there's there's a there's a brilliance to using that setting to solve his problem as a writer that that I was really taken by, and it goes it goes like this. I mean, he wants to get out a bunch of different things, but one is the ways in which she is struggling with grief because obviously she is, and he needs her to be able to vocalize that, but it's very hard for her to say it to the people in her family around her because. Right. They don't want to hear it. They're going through it, too. Right. <clears throat> so he puts her in a setting where the whole setup is that of that setting is a spotlight gets turned on you. Sometimes you don't even really want to say anything. Right. And so having the person who has exposition go, look, I don't really want to say is <laughs> or to play that idea is a is a is a great subverter. Of yeah. The fact that they have to tell us. And then you put them in the scenario where. She says, which is very common to these settings, she says way too much to this room full of strangers and that, and that some of it isn't even necessarily really appropriate for that setting, but she has the liberty to do it and that kind of stuff goes on all the time. And then those people there who believably have to listen to her exposit because that's what happens in those settings, then they get to react the way we're reacting, which is, holy shit. Um, and so they become, they all become the, um, the surrogates for us in that setting, listening to this exposition that has to come out. So I thought it was a really great way to get through or to get out some tricky info that he wanted to, to lay out there just to, you know, sort of like stoking a fire. He needed to get something going. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that the engine could keep chugging along. And that was a, that was a great, I thought a great way to do that. And yeah, I agree that a great deal of the dialogue has a very sort of a naturalistic feel. Uh, what's his name? It just popped into my head. Those Ethan Hawke movies before Midnight, After Midnight. Oh, Linklater. Oh, Linklater, yeah. Where they're sort of wandering around. Is that uh, Delpy? Ju um, oh, Julie Delpy. Julie Delpy. And where, you know, where it's all very sort of natural and it feels organic. And so it felt this way, too, even though what you were hearing people say wasn't necessarily anything you wanted to hear. Right. It's this weird, this weird combination of things. So what you recognized before about her, about, um, you know, being on the verge of overdoing it, I kind of feel like mm -hmm. Tony, when, when Tony Collette does that, I, I feel like it's appropriate for the character that she's playing, because I could almost see that character just break out into maniacal laughing right at, at, right. at even the sound of what she herself is saying and then you know. yeah i mean she's so she's so great in that speech there's just all of the all of the different stuff that's sort of flying across her face her face sorry the way she's moving her lips or she's chewing her lips or all these small things that she's yeah. doing that make it seem so real to me and so natural to me and um Oh, shoot, a thought flew through my head and then it flew right out again. I can't quite recall. And I don't remember, I mean, I haven't seen her work in the United States of Terra, and I feel I feel bad about that. I don't. I doubt you have since it's television and that's not your ballywick. Clips, but not, uh, not a whole episode. Oh, okay, I see. I have like a very childish uh, anti-Diablo Cody thing. Which we'll and hear so about I, soon I, enough. <laughs> I stayed away from. So, in any case, um, I, I don't know. I don't know her work from that. I I remember being, you know, she was sort of a revelation in Muriel's wedding a thousand years ago. So I remember being swept up by her charm and her youth and her her quirky beauty and all those things that sort of everybody fell in love with in that in that one movie. And then, you know, being very touched by her in the sixth sense, but everything she did there was very subtle and very withdrawn. It wasn't this kind of big stuff, but she, it was a sort of perfect supporting turn from her. And then I remember her pretty well from uh, little miss sunshine where she was, you know, part of a more active. And I have my feelings one way or another about that story, but I 
you, I got to see a lot of her on display. So I've seen her, you know, a handful of times, not necessarily always the thing she's known for, but I, I like her a lot. And, and I was just really blown away by her here. Oh yeah. I saw her in Fright Night. I must've seen that. So yeah, I've seen her in a bunch of different things, but, um, this definitely for me changed how I saw her as an actress. I had a similar um, revelation in a way of Anne Dowd. Oh, and I mean she was she was great in this, but yeah, I I only think of her now as Aunt Lydia from The Handmaid's Tale. Right. <laughs> so for some reason, and, and she so embodies Aunt Lydia that I. Like to see her play a normal human being, it was it was just stunning to me, and I was like, "Oh no, wait a minute!" Well, of course she is a normal human being, so you know, in the Anne Dowd universe, she's like really like breakout amazing in Handmaid's Tale, and this is like what she always right. does. But for me, I was just like, I mean, it it was about halfway through her first scene with Tony Collette that I realized it was her. Oh wow, you were she was that sort of foreign to you in this role yeah absolutely yeah that that i that i I didn't i didn't give my give hard confirmation to myself until at least halfway through that scene like like they were in her apartment already like that kind of a hard a hard confirmation sounds dirtier than i think you meant it to meant it to sound oh no um (laughs) oh i meant it all right it's all right. We're we're listed as explicit, so no no children are going to hear this by accident. She is she is a you know on purpose. a journeyman or a journeywoman character actress that you've seen over and over again, but who manages to sort of melt away and move on to the next thing. Right. To me, she's a sign, always a sign. Like there's just those people who, when you go, oh, that person is it. That means it's going to be better than. Right. It sometimes better than it deserves. I haven't looked at her filmography yet because I I know that okay. I've seen her before, but Absolutely. she just never I saw registered. Her in, the, uh, in in the informant, uh, I know I saw that. True Detective, she did mm. a little thing there. If you haven't seen that HBO series, you should probably catch up with the first season. Right after Breaking somehow. Bad, <laughs> you bastard. Uh, she was in an HBO show called Olive Kitteridge, which was uh, starred the great great uh, Mc McDormand. Francis, Francis, yeah, man, um, and and Jenkins, Richard Jenkins, the aforementioned beloved Richard Richard Jenkins, um, she was in that as well. But for me, you're saying that for you it was Handmaid's Tale with her. For me, it was The Leftovers, the now canceled uh, HBO series where she. Oh no, maybe it wasn't even HBO. Maybe it was something else. But she was in twenty plus episodes there, and she was phenomenal she was as phenomenal in that as she was in handmaid's tale but i almost argue that none of them are real people they're almost you know they're these extraordinary characters that are like hyper real or beyond real right and this she was more down to earth she has that supernatural organic style so i thought yeah i didn't know she was in this and i was very happy to see her here it made me feel safe and in much the same way that Ruth Gordon does. I always found Ruth Gordon, like, when I come across her and stuff, I go, oh, my God, this is so, so good that she's here. And it uh, made me very happy. Gabriel Byrne, to me, I don't know. He, he's a guy who I think made me more excited in the earlier parts of his career than he ended up in the later parts of his career, like Miller's Crossing. And, right. You're saying and he himself was more excited about his career. <laughs> Back then, he's, like now, he he's given up like on himself. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, he. I mean, I'm. I'm assuming he was intentionally <laughs> schlubby in this, but uh, no. But I, I. I mean, I agree with you. I feel like, yeah. What What happened to that guy from Miller's Crossing? Suddenly, he just like evaporated. Right. I blame Elaine Barkin. <laughs> or Ellen Barkin. Um, Ellen Barkin and Elaine. Let's blame them both. Just cover our bases. No. Well, I. I wonder if if some of that is the directors that he's worked with. Possibly. That, those, that the Coens and uh, now, of course, shamefully, I can't remember who, uh, uh, Quarry, McQuarrie, who was it who did Usual Suspects? Oh, well, Christopher McQuarrie wrote it, but Brian Singer directed it. 
Brian Singer. Maybe it was uh, it was Brian Singer and the Coen brothers brought something out in him or cast him in such a way that it really made him shine in a way that others haven't been or that he hasn't been able to to do. And I really kind of found I wasn't sure why it was him cast in this part. I was a little bumped by the fact that whether or not the I don't know what the actual age difference is between them. And I didn't really know. Now I do. It, it felt like it was a bigger chasm. I thought, this is the mom and this is the grandfather. And I, you know, before you knew what the relationships were, I just slotted him in as the grandfather. Yeah, I, I, I'm completely with you. The, and, and like I said before, when I said rough around the edges for a first film, there were some, there were some things that were mishandled. And yeah. I feel like, yeah, the, the introduction to the characters, the, the family was uh, was a little unclear because I too had that thought like, wow, he doesn't seem really broken up for his wife dying. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure what he what he was playing or how he was playing it, and I don't know that it's just the introduction. I feel like the casting of Gabriel Byrne. Sometimes they take an actor, and I wish I could think of one off the top of my head, but Ann Dowd might be a good example of one where there's really not that much on the page, but you bring in someone like Ann Dowd or one of these these long term hardcore journeyman journeywomen actresses actors, and they just by their mere presence add something that's not there. Yeah. And if anything, I felt like he might have taken away from something that wasn't there. I didn't feel like he was filling in blanks that then explained why it was he who was cast. Like, oh, only Gabriel Byrne could have done that. Well, I think those days are gone too. And he laments them. <laughs> he feels to me a little bit more like um, Michael Caine at this point. <laughs> Just showing up and cashing checks and moving on. Point taken about. Uh, yeah, about I, I was him a little bewildered movie. by him in this, and and I'll circle back to the only other reason when I went. Oh, of course it was him. There, I did have an aha moment, but it came later in the movie, so I'll save that for later. There were a couple of times where I really, actually, kind of felt for his character. There was something about the way he was like shouldering this psychological burden of his wife cracking up that uh you know at the end when he refuses to uh to uh to to burn to to throw the book in the fireplace but you know like that whole long slow going along with her and and then when he you know delivers that he can't it was i was just like oh man of course you can't yeah Maybe it wasn't signature Gabriel Byrne. Not sure what signal, signature Gabriel Byrne is, but um, he 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 did put, he did add some gravitas here. Okay, and I, I you know I did like like the scene where he pokes his head in on mm-hmm. um, the older son and he just checks in with him, kind of a thing, and and just sort of while we're. While we're talking about it, I had a thought, since since one of our jobs is to fix things as the doctors, mm. this was a thought I had since I was so unsatisfied with <clears throat> his character. And because I had, I had floating, Rosemary's baby floating in the back of my head, I sort of felt like at some point, setting aside the moment that you just talked about, because it would severely alter that moment without some different setup. I feel like he should have been installed by the by the cult. Hmm. Take the whole performance he just gave, but at some point there's a reveal that he was basically brought to her, unbeknownst to her. He's in those pictures with uh, O'Dowd and the and the mother. Oh, interesting. And that he is he, the reason that it's those kids is it's his seed. I mean that he's part of the equation. Yeah. Hmm. And so then all of his behavior would t- take on this other, sa- save that scene you referenced, all of his behavior would take on something that then had gr- greater depth and more sinister meaning. When he checks on his son and says, how are you doing? Are you feeling okay? I know you're sad, but ba 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 And the kid says, you know what? I'm not really that upset. That could have been him checking to see if this boy was yet unstable enough for them to put the put the plan into action. And then they go, nope, he's not. So we better do something to the daughter. We better do something to his sister. Hmm. Interesting. 
Anyway, that was just a, a, a passing thought. And then as, as long as we're on him and then I can stop uh, talking about him. Well, let me just interject really quickly. Yeah, yeah, please. The, he also has uh, a very brief exchange with uh, with the son at the dinner table where the kid says, nice chicken, and he goes, yeah, thanks, buddy. And there was something about his delivery of thanks, buddy, and the look he gives him, it was like, like we're, we're, we're there for each other kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, like like thanks for saying it, like I needed just the that kind of positive acknowledgement. I don't know. But right. anyway, right. so sorry. Um, yeah, so the other thing was... Uh, the, the reason he was cast, specifically he and only he could have brought to it, is that his last name is Burn, and he burns. Oh. I'm like, oh, of course, that's why it's him. That is a very cynical outlook to have. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, generally speaking, I was... I, I, um, okay, look. No, no, no. We're... <laughs> This one, this one is like so. There's so much stuff in here. And listen, I, know. I did not leave going. I want to tell everybody I've seen to go see this movie. I I left going, wanting to tell anybody who might be thinking of going and seeing it to yeah. really possibly reconsider. Yeah, no, I, I and I succeeded with that today. But someone at work. Yeah, and and my son did that with us. We he had seen it a couple days before. We were all supposed to see it together, and then he snuck off with his friends. And he texted us later, and he's like, "Don't go," <laughs> you know. Yeah. Like, Mom's not gonna like it. And it wasn't exactly that he was saying it was bad, but that it wasn't. It was just, it's just hard. And so there's so many little cracks and crevices here that we're, <laughs> we're in danger of this thing running a, running a long time. But you sort of casually referenced the, the sister, the daughter, and her, uh, and her unfortunate accident. Yes. And so I, I, I thought we should sort of, you know, you sort of jumped to the, to the end of her story. And we never really, really didn't get to break apart, like... Here's the thing. She is heavily featured in those ads. They're absolutely mm. sort of trying to do a Sixth Sense Bruce Willis type thing with him in the sense that you don't necessarily expect that something bad is going to happen to her because you feel like she might be the star of the show. Right. And they they picked somebody who was... I mean, I'd be really interested in seeing the actual script like before any rewrites, before any of that... Was she someone that unusual? Because the son isn't. And I wonder if it was one of these things where she was just a daughter and then that actress came in and they went, wait a minute, this is an opportunity to do something extra different. Or if it was built into the DNA of the thing. I'm going to guess it was built into the DNA, not based on anything, just a gut feeling. Okay. Uh, that's, that, that's fine and that's fair. But she is so sort of visually startling and the camera does not shy away from her face. It hangs on her. It drinks her in. It makes us watch her even when, in the case of, for example, my wife, she didn't want to. Mm -hmm. I mean, I feel cruel saying this and I've seen photos of the same actress where she looks, you know, better and more inviting and I'm trying to avoid the word normal, but... She's cleaned up in the ads is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's... Marketing did their job. She is, can be disturbing in the way they present her in this movie, disturbing to look at. And sort of unsettling in a, at a DNA level in... in oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, there, there was no you know, early Drew Barrymore cuteness, and it, you know, it wasn't right. someone like um, oh, Millie Bobby Brown the, from... Yeah. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah, it's like... Yeah, I do. Oh, okay. This is uh, so so like local. From the very beginning, you're off. You're you're on guard with her, put off a little bit. But you, there's also this built-in thing where you want to kind of be. You feel like you should be a on her side or a champion for her because we're built in to go. Well, here's an underdog, or here's somebody with a right who's a, differently abled, and we need to, you know, uh, respect that and cheer them on, and so on and so forth. So it it does this really interesting thing by casting her it does this very interesting thing where it puts you as her, as defender of her in some way, you're rooting for her. Right. And then at the same time, you're made slightly, if not very uncomfortable by the sight of her. Right. And she seems sweet enough, but before too long, she's cutting the head off a bird, you know? Yeah. And so there's definitely, and just how Tony Collette and the, the character of her mother were clearly so tied to one another and so, 
symbiotically, but it, a toxic symbi symbiosis between Tony Collette and her mother, whom we never see, but you definitely get the sense that it's there. And that in, in some ways, you know, it, it's carried on in the next generation. Yeah. With Tony Collette and this daughter, whom she doesn't, she hasn't had a mother to teach her how to relate to her children and her daughter specifically in a healthy way. And so there were so many times I have to tell you that I was so mad at Gabriel, the character that Gabriel Byrne played, the character that Tony Collette played. Why? At what terrible parents they were. Oh. This is, this is going on, you know, quiet place level irresponsibility. If you've got a child with a, a deathly nut allergy, you don't go without your EpiPen. Yeah, you don't leave the house without your EpiPen. Yeah, I know. Right. The way that gets exposited to us is them going, you know, is, is this way that they're reminding each other. They're not saying, oh, my God, we're idiots. They're just going, we don't have it with us, you know. Yeah. So I go, okay, they're, they're idiots. No, in but... fact, I, I, I hated the delivery of that line. Yeah. Because it was so like, you know, we don't have the EpiPen. It was, but it was here's a, the thing about it. See, oh God, I get so mad because I really want to dislike Ari Aster as a writer or a director. I feel like somebody needs to be blamed for this movie. <laughs> and he seems like the likely sort. Again, not because I think it's bad, just because it's so Well, whatever. you know, um, yeah. I mean, there was definitely a couple of moments where, I don't know if it was the direction given to the actors or an editing decision that didn't work. Yeah. But yeah, there were definitely some moments of delivery and execution that okay. needed a little more rehearsal time. Because you're right, it should, it, that should have come off much more naturally, like, you know, like, oh shit, I left the FBP at home. You know? Right. Or, well, even if, you, to me, it's like, never forget the EpiPen. The fact that you did now right. devalues you to me. But here's, this is what I was about to say, is that even while I'm, this is a cheer within a jeer. I'm jeering at the fact that he had to exposit that and that he had to make these parents from the very beginning just pretty bad parents, not very thoughtful and, and not very protective of their own children. Right. So I'm, 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 I'm jeering that. But then later, when she goes out with her brother, there's no question of, oh, well, of course he's got the Jeppy EpiPen. As soon as trouble rears its head, you go, they don't have it because they've already established that that's not going to happen. Right. And so he, even in his expositing it, he was also setting up, he was laying in this idea that it's going to matter later. Um, or not just that it's going to matter later, but that later it will be forgotten again, but we won't be surprised later. Because imagine if... Right. Imagine if we hadn't heard about it in the first reel, but we only heard that he should have had the EpiPen when he needed it. That's terrible, right? To that's create true. the problem in the middle of the film. No, that's true. So, it's funny because I didn't, you know, as I was watching it, I didn't think of the EpiPen line as telegraphing something that was going to come up later. I mean, obviously there was right. an importance given to it, but I was taking it more as a piece in the mosaic of that little girl, Charlie. Right thinking you know ooh, you know she's like one of those and i didn't see it i didn't see it as foreshadowing kids. either i was so busy being angry at it for being exposing them for being terrible parents mm. and clumsy exposition i all my focus was in the wrong place <laughs> so I, I found i find that interesting is that it was this clumsy move but in a way the clumsiness of it is what masked this other thing about it that if I had realized, I would be apoplectic. If I had also tripped on the fact that it was a foreshadowing when I saw it, I would have been. Well, in retrospect, I'm glad it was. I'm also glad it was done that way because had there been yeah. no mention of the EpiPen, and she goes to the party with the brother, yeah. and suddenly can't breathe, just by virtue of the fact that you had enough information about this movie to walk into the theater and put your ass in the seat. I think most people would immediately assume it's got something to do with the curse or the haunting or the, like whatever's going on in right. this movie. This is the first manifestation of it. And the only way that we've really covered that would have been he freaks out. He kind of like checks a pocket real quick. And then there's a shot of him bursting downstairs and screaming, does anyone have an EpiPen? Right. Which I still sort of feel like was a missing missing beat i felt like that was missing too I mean, actually because i'm like you know there are a lot of people there it's very possible someone's got i assumed i just i just told myself he did that 
on his way out of the house, he did that, and it wasn't necessary for me to see. I, I actually, as you were talking, I was kind of talking myself out of something, which is, let's say they're ha they hadn't established the uh, nut allergy. This is, by the way, a lot of great hot nut talk, and this is exactly what people are tuning in for. Oh, yeah. But uh, let's say they hadn't established the nut allergy, and this was the only scene that you where were it see. Where it comes up. Where it comes up. They, they, they almost start the party with this giant chef knife, uh, chopping and chopping and chopping these walnuts. So that's that's that shot says these nuts are important. And then, if you weren't going to exposit it, you're not even going to have him run through the house saying, "Does anybody have an EpiPen?" Because nobody in his family even knows she has a nut allergy, and nobody in the audience knows it. The way you watched them put the walnuts on the cake, the way you watched her eat the cake and chew the walnuts. And then she starts to have difficulty breathing. Most most adults in the room, anyway, will go, oh, my God, she's a nut allergy. Right. We didn't know this. But a bunch of in high school kids it, aren't may not necessarily... Right. In which case, it can still play into this idea of maybe it is related to the curse. Right. You know, it could, it could play both ways. So you don't absolutely have to establish that nut allergy to have it play in the moment unless you feel determined to exposit in the moment, oh, I forgot the... Well, event. you know, it's interesting because I feel like um, the movie, like they very deliberately hide or camouflage exactly whatever candy she was eating. Because a couple of times it was like supposed to be a Hershey bar, but it was just off enough that I'm like, wait, is that Hershey's with almonds? Are those peanut M&Ms? Right. Like maybe right. she's not really allergic and it's just these like crazy overprotective parents. <laughs> I love that too. They invented a peanut allergy for her. They invented a nut allergy. Or it's the kind of thing where it's like she has a sensitivity, but the parents call it an allergy and she's just like, yeah, whatever, right. I can eat well, this stuff. that very first time somebody goes, that doesn't have nuts in it, does it? Uh, I think it's Gabriel Byrne who says it. You hear it crunching as though it has nuts in it. Yeah, so I'm, it, I'm thinking it, that, that, that there was a deliberate uh, ambiguity in there about exactly what candy she's snacking on at any given time. Well, my, my kid slash, I guess it's just my kid. Uh, <laughs> he, he swears. What? What, what? what what else would he have been slash what exactly? Well, I thought kids. I was going to credit both of them for having said it, but then I made it sound like he wasn't my son. Yeah, I was going to say. Wait. Suppose he's sometimes my he's kid. my son, sometimes he's my plumber. <laughs> Yeah. Oh my God, that's funny. Um, he swears up and down that it was Dove bars that she was eating. Dove bars. So I don't know. I don't know what those sound like when people eat them. But as long as we keep. But that would about work. It, but you know. But that would that would tie in interesting with the interestingly with the bird if she was eating a Dove bar. Oh. <laughs> oh my God. Especially. I mean, was it a pigeon or was it a dove? Oh, I think that was a pigeon. Absolutely. Oh yeah, but no. If it's dove bars and it's a dove, then I'm I'm a hundred percent. This is my favorite movie that ever was made. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna have to tell uh, my son about that. So I just because we've talked about her to to you know quite a bit. The actress in question is Millie Shapiro, and this it said introducing Millie Shapiro. She's got a couple of credits uh, where she is essentially playing herself. Ah. Uh. Uh, like at Tony Awards and the Thanksgiving Day Parade, sort of things like that. And here, this is her first acting job. I thought she did a a very solid job. I mean, for playing somebody who was weird. Yeah. It's hard to know what, with her uniqueness, it's hard to know what kind of work she could go on to. But I hope I hope to see her again. You could say that about Millicent Simmons, <laughs> so that, too. That where he's, he's running through the house, he's got her in his arms, he's racing to the car, I mean, I was barely holding it together for this whole thing up to this point because I was so angry at these terrible parents, and I had a lot of different feelings going on that were that were making me whatever. But when he, you know, and, and some of that is predictable. Like, like I'm like, okay, there's going to be a car crash here. I am preparing myself for a car crash, and I'm preparing myself for the fact that this girl is probably going to die, or something, you know, very upsetting is going to happen to her. In any case. There's no way on earth I was prepared for what happened. Her decapitation. Oh yeah. yeah, oh yeah. And I thought it was so sophisticated and showed a, a level of maturity in the filmmaking that it's a shot of her head leaning out the window as though you're looking as though you're as though the camera is the side view mirror. 
Right. And then there's probably a shot of him yelling. Then there's a shot of the, the telephone pole coming closer. And then there's the horrible noise. And I'm not sure even if you're seeing anything or what you're seeing. And then it just holds on him. Yeah. As he hits the brake and pulls to a stop and he processes what just happened through his, um, you know, weed fog. And heavily burdened psyche. Oh, yeah. And just all the guilt and all the everything else. And I, I was I was sitting there and, and the audience is sitting there and they're doing the same thing he is. Yeah. As you're trying to sort of come to grips with what just happened. Because everything was fun and games until that moment. And I really had a hard time staying in the theater during the next, you know, five, ten minutes, fifteen minutes. Oh man. I which to I just wanted to go. I'm like, I think I'm done here. Wow. I don't think I care what happens anymore. Wow. I didn't exactly lie in the aisle and sob with Doreen patting my back the way we see moments later. With Tony Collette and, uh, and Gabriel Byrne. Okay. In reverse. Yeah. But I, I was basically like, okay, that's it. I'm gone. I'm done. But we see him pull up to the house, but we don't get anywhere near enough to the car to have any idea. And you start thinking, did he get rid of the body? Did he clean up the house somehow? I mean, did he clean up the car somehow? And he's just going to say, she ran out of the party. I don't know where she is. Then he's in bed and he's lying there. And then just that brilliant shot where we're on his face, where he it looks like he, he hasn't slept a second. Yeah. And he's listening to the mom get up and she says to Gabriel Byrne off camera, okay, well, I'm going to go to the shopping. Right. Whatever. I'm going to go to the market. And you hear her on the stairs and you hear, you're just following her off. And, and you're dreading it and you're dreading hearing it. Right. While that plays out. And so... Again, to sort of, it's a very sophisticated and mature approach to put that that action off screen, yeah, and and sort of deny the actress the opportunity of playing the moment in front of the camera. But also, I kept going. I just, I just want him to have hid the body. I just don't want to hear her scream. Please don't scream. I wasn't waiting for it to happen. I was praying that it wouldn't happen. Hmm. That we wouldn't add this extra layer of horror and grief to them and that's where i really started thinking about this as a horror movie not in the in the sense that people go oh you know ooh, it's spooky but that it is it is horrible <laughs> that it is horrifying in this in not in a way that has anything to do with with uh, necessarily you know uh the supernatural spirits or evil or yeah right right but is 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 hor- horrifying because of the the ways in which these human beings are interacting with each other and the, the events that occur. Or that the sequence of events yeah. is horrifying. Or a sequence of horrifying events. Yes, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> well, you know, well, now it's interesting that you brought that, that you bring that up because this is another rough edge that I had some problems oh, yeah. with was um, uh, the passing of time was not clearly conveyed. I don't know about you. I had the impression that the daughter's decapitation happened like within a week of the mama dying. Uh, yeah. So already before it happened, I kind of felt like, like as soon as the mom was buried, I'm just watching the reactions of everybody. I'm like, Jesus, no one really seems like moved at all that grandma's dead. You know, it was it was somehow a surprise to me, and, and I started thinking more about the the opening of the movie and and the motions that that the family goes through on the day of the funeral. Mm-hmm. Come on, get dressed, you know, and all that, you know, like getting the kids out of bed. Right. And it seems now, man, they were really detached. It was a, it was a revelation to me to find out that the mother had been living in that house. Right, right. Because they seemed so resolved, so no longer broken up by the fact that grandma died right, within right. a week. I agree that it felt like something was off, but I do allow for the fact that, A, if grandma's death had been lingering and they had all been living with the cloud of her impending death for a long time. Mm, okay. That comes as a relief, but then guilt comes along with that relief. Okay, that's fair. Um, that's or, absolutely fair. And or she was a horrible, horrible... Human being. Person. 
Yeah. And so there's relief that goes along with that. But again, then guilt that comes from that. But even within the context of my going, that's that I can get that. It did definitely still feel like something was wrong. Like I kept going, who is Gabriel Byrne? He doesn't seem emotionally connected to any of these activities, which is why. And it didn't even make sense when I had him be the grandfather. I actually went, oh, he's the grandfather, but he's the grandfather on the other side. Like <laughs> right, right. He couldn't be Tony Collette's dad. No, 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 no. He was an in-law of hers and didn't really care. No, no. Uh, well, he was. It was his stepmother, you know. So, so yeah, I definitely feel like there was something there, and it was hard to sort of track time. Well, the um, only reason I say it is because it came up when she's talking to Ann Dowd, and she yeah. says, you know, I was here a few months ago when my mother died, and a couple of days ago my daughter died. So I'm like, oh, wait, right. there were months in between there? Because... There were months there, right. Yeah, that's that's true. There, 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 it would have been helpful to have an indicator that would have been, you know... Oh, now, now there's snow on the ground. Or whatever, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Something that made it clear. I think the repetitious nature of his scenes in class made me feel like it... I kept thinking, if he's going to school and it's, it's, it's a week later, or 10 days later, and he's in that bad of shape... Not only is his, does his family not seem to care, but the school doesn't, doesn't seem to care. Yeah. Until he bashes his head on the thing, and then they only send him home. Whereas my experiences with schools in my the life of my own kids is that they're all over everything. They're up your ass about everything. Hmm. You know, because nobody wants to get in trouble later for not having blown a whistle. Right. Or you know, giving you the opportunity to whatever. So who's the kid? Alex Wolf. Alex Wolf. Alex Wolf. Yeah. He was yeah, he was really terrific. He did a great job of looking looking crappy. Um to me another very unique feature about this movie is Yeah. I felt like this movie got the best mileage I've ever seen out of people freaking out at something that isn't there. <laughs> uh give me an example. Just just like I, I felt like th- th- there was this constant like people like jumping out of their seat or you know, when he hears the in the car. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and things like, like or when he sees the, the, the reflection of himself in the in the in class and just like such a suddenly like spooked and woken awake. Did you feel like um, any of that was effective at all or was, it didn't I, land I at all? I did that it was it was, you know, usually what they do is they throw a cat into frame or they, you know, they they amp up the the score or the or the, you know, the soundtrack in such a way to get you tense. And then and then something falls off a shelf or whatever. Yeah. And here it was much sort of smarter and much more organic when those sorts of things, or when those sorts of things happened. I, uh, for a second, I was a little confused when you said it, just because I was thinking about uh, Alex Wolf, who I also thought was terrific. I got a couple different things to say about him, but specifically about the scene I referenced where he bashes his head onto the desktop. He, the actor had wanted to, break his own nose in that scene. Yeah, I heard. Had you heard that? Okay. And that they they said no, and that they had provided a a padded desktop so that that wouldn't happen, that no harm would come to him, and then somehow, I'm going to put that in quotation marks, somehow the padded desk wasn't the one that was there. And I don't know if that's the prop department fucking up, or Alex Wolf making sure he got what he needed. Uh, yeah, yeah. It out Did he end up breaking his nose, is the question. Yeah, that blood you see, and, and a certain amount of that was real. Oh, wow. Which was, uh, for me, that was unnecessary to put his his performance in the Pantheon. I thought his performance was already there. I didn't need to know, oh, and that was also real. Well, you didn't have to find out about it, yeah. You know what I mean? It's not like that clinched it yeah. for me. I thought he was fantastic, but I this is going to sound so terrible. I'm going to sound like a horrible xenophobe. But I was not reading him. As their as their biological son, their biological child. He seemed like he was maybe uh, East Indian or Middle Eastern, yeah, or Middle Eastern, yes, yeah. And so I was like, "What is going on?" And I'm like, "Are they adopting different kids? They adopted her because she had a need, and they adopted him because anyone who's not white has a need." Or you know, I just couldn't quite get it to make sense um, that he was their kid. But even within that, and setting that aside. I thought the work he did was fantastic. Well, the only thing I'll say about th- about that is that I was I, I had the same feeling. I also kind of worked into it for me. Well, Gabriel Byrne had you know the younger days had that, that black Irish jet black 
here going on? Right, I guess right. it's possible. Right. Yeah, that he had somehow, that it was it was a sort of a, a I want to say, swarthiness that was coming from that side of your family. Maybe that's the reason. You know, I think that's the signature Gabriel Byrne, is the swarthiness. And I think that's why you, like, instinctively wanted him at the end to have been in on the conspiracy. So that we can have that moment where he's like, yeah, I was, you know, like, this whole time. I've been doing the devil's work. Right, 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 right. What, the, what was that movie he did with Schwarzenegger? End of Days, where he essentially yes, plays the devil. Yes, Listen, going back to Alex Wolf for just a yep. second, I feel like he gave a very nuanced and kind of um, carefully plotted performance, and it, it just it made something jump into my head. I recently saw the 1957 version of Gunfight at the OK Corral, uh, with, you know, uh, what's his name? Douglas, Kirk Douglas, mm-hmm. and uh, who was it? Burt Lancaster. And I had been reading that Kirk Douglas, who was playing Doc Holliday, who uh, had tuberculosis, eventually died from tuberculosis, mm-hmm. and that he went through the script and basically mapped out very carefully, very specifically, this is how I'm going to cough in this scene, this is how I'm going to cough in that scene, so that when it was then run chronologically, his coughs were getting worse. Wow. Because they would be shooting it all out of order. And in some ways, Alex, uh, Alex's performance reminded me of that idea because he had to be a little bit more deranged than he was before, but only incrementally. And so he had to have a very careful grip on where he was in his transition from sort of, yeah. quote unquote, normal high school student to a kid who was oh, off the deep end. And just while I'm on a gunfight, just as a as a little bit of a side note, yeah. uh, one of the reasons I stayed and watched it was for the supporting cast, like the deeply supporting bit players, which included Earl Holloman, uh, DeForest Kelly, oh. Jack, I pronounce his last name, Elam. That's how I pronounce it, but I don't know if it's Maybe correct. Elam, I don't know, from, uh, he used to do the uh, <laughs> Rocky Rock the Rock. He used to do the... Um, Support your local gunfighter. Support your local sheriff. He was the comic side. Right. The the uh, the, the cross-eyed. Um, gen- was that actor? Yeah, the cross-eyed oh, hardware guy in Little House on the <laughs> yeah. Prairie or something. Yeah. Right. Yeah, right. you never see him without so, overalls, uh, ever. <laughs> Pretty much. That is true. Um, I did see him in something recently where he was like a, a tough guy, but not a country tough guy, but, but playing it very straight. And really, very notably, Dennis Hopper, an impossibly young Dennis Hopper playing one of the family of bad guys. Oh, wow. And in a, in a part that I thought, Oh, he just had, th- it was a five and under, but, but eventually he has a, you know, two or three really solid scenes. Hmm. And I went, Oh, that's very cool. And he's, he comes off so much like James Dean, you know, troubled youth yeah. and whatever. He has a couple of big scenes in giant also. Oh, his yeah. early career, his pre easy writer career cannot be just, uh, written off uh, yeah pigeonhole yeah. or whatever he was he was moving around yeah. a lot a- alex wolf hasn't been in a bunch of other things that i feel like i've seen my big fat greek wedding too so i must have seen a bit of that he was in in treatment which is with gabriel byrne hmm. and so i wonder if there was you know like it, I, I often wonder, certainly on small things like this, where larger name actors are pulling in people that they've worked with before recently. I think that sometimes happens. What other movies did you think of besides Rosemary's Baby? Ah, it's so funny that you should say Is that. It? I also thought of The Babadook. The Babadook? <laughs> the Babadook is from 2014. It sort of flew under the radar, but it was sort of a cult. Sort of? It got a certain amount of mention. No, I don't. I don't think it's what? sort of. I think it flew under the radar. Oh, I think it went. I think it went underground and tunneled below the radar. Okay, I was trying to sort of give you a little window for not having heard of it, so I was sort of playing with downplaying how how much I heard about it here. But I didn't find this movie. I heard about this movie. Um, the blurb on it is: a, a widowed mother, plagued by the violent death of her husband, battles with her son's fear of a monster lurking in the house but soon discovers a sinister, sinister presence. And there's an actual book, like a children's book, in which there's this fictional character in the book called the Babadook, which is kind of like a boogeyman. And so they're reading the book, and then things that are happening in the book start happening in the house kind of a thing. Mm. 
and it has this sort of it's a psychological thriller but it's a you know something scary is going on but is it really and i remember seeing it not in the theaters i believe that my wife and i saw it on tv or you know on demand or whatever it was and we were a little confused and underwhelmed by it so hmm. i went out and read a lot about it and tried to yeah huh the babadook the babadook yeah. I was written and directed by uh, a woman named Jennifer Kent. Um, and it's, you know, follows a mother and so on and so forth. I think otherwise most of the cast in that is unknown, which is often the case with uh, movies like this. And I have a few more that it reminded me of, but you, you name one. Early 70s British movie called The Wicker Man. Ooh. I know The Wicker Man, but not that earlier version of it. Just in the... S- There's a later one. Yeah. The Nicolas Cage thing. Yeah, no, the early one is like a quiet little British film that just leaves you very, very uneasy. Like thing, like everyone in it is just a little off, but not in a huh. heavy telegraphing kind of way. And the dread becomes unbearable until the very end. But the other movie that I thought of, a more recent film I thought of, was uh, another Roman Polanski movie called The Ninth Gate. Mm-hmm. Which I feel like. Oh, I never saw that. Well, it it it's it's almost structurally. Is that Johnny Depp? Yeah, it's it's structurally closer to this movie than it is to Rosemary's ba- than this movie is to Rosemary's Baby, because it's oh. it, it's not until the very end that the proximity spoiler alert that the proximity of the devil is made clear, and so you oh. are now like looking like thinking back on the preceding hour and a half and reevaluating interactions mm. and revelations right. in the context of see that's what i that's yes that's what i mean about uh, gabriel burns character if we could have done that i would have been happier but go on yeah no just uh yeah just basically like, like to me this was a more this was a better version of the ninth gate this was this was what this was what the ninth <laughs> okay. gate set out to do in terms of Right. Build up and reveal. Um, I've, I've got a couple more myself. Go. And in fairness, these other ones were produced, were ma- also made by A24. Oh, really? The same production entity. Yes. One of them is from 2015 called The Witch. I really want to see that. That's funny. That's the same company? By Robert. Oh, man. Yeah. Robert Eggers is the writer-director. Um, the cast is largely unknown or was largely unknown to me although i think one of them might have been you know in something before kind of yeah or maybe yeah but for that story it works because it's like what the 1600s colony colonial america listen i would say yeah it has all that dread all that stuff that's already there and the and then isolation this incredible isolation and a bunch of other stuff go and look at it i won't say much now go and look at at it maybe we can touch on it on a future a future episode here and just uh, sort of re bring back some of this conversation. And another one that this reminded me of in a way, or was by the same production company anyway. And you know what? Tonally, I think it had, I think it's fair. It's from 2017 starring Joel Edgerton. Oh, your favorite. Um, It comes at night. It comes at night. You mentioned this before this comes at night. I did. I did. And it has, you know, uh, a family living in, in not, not exclusion. They are, it's sort of a post-apocalyptic type thing, but you don't really ever see the apocalyptic part hmm. of it. It's just off stage and uh, this cloud hanging over the way they now have to live. Hmm. Similar in a sense to a quiet place where you're, they're out in the middle of nowhere and it's just that. Yeah. And there's a situation that's going on, but it has nothing to do with aliens or anything like that. Gotcha. Okay. Um, All right. I'm sold. And and it, in in that movie, this family is is has figured out how they're going to live in the wilderness and how they're going to live in this isolation. And then another family comes needing refuge, and that creates this dynamic shift that is okay. Uh, okay. I've heard. I've heard. I've heard too much. Very interesting. Yeah. I. I. It was exciting to me to to realize they were all coming from the same, you know, production. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to, I know I've mentioned this once before, but just talking about uh, handling, like the way grief is handled in, in film and yeah. TV. I was always impressed with a sh- with the American version of a show from another country, and I don't remember where, 
called The Killing, which had uh, oh yeah, Ariel, you've, you know, you've so talked about you've talked about that show before, yeah, yeah, and it, it centers around the death of a young girl and blah blah blah. Now a lot of times in these police procedurals and things, you don't have a going from week to week. It all gets wrapped up in one week, and whatever you're seeing of family grief or the people who are survivor grief or whatever it is is brief and perfunctory, even if it's intense. Right. It goes away by the end of the thing, and you're kind of done having to worry about it. But Brent Sexton plays the father of this missing girl, who they is missing at first, but eventually found dead, probably. And his the way in which the writers, the directors, and the way in which he handled his character's grief is like a symphony. It's hmm. unbelievable and really hard to watch. But I was thinking about that as well a little bit while watching Tony Collette. And her sort of mask of sorrow through the you know last two thirds of the yeah. film. And while while I was thinking of a couple little things that I was like going to wanting to go, oh, isn't it cool that they did this or they did they did that? But then it fell out of my head. I wonder if I I, I think I'll be seeing it again at some point, um, even though I don't want to. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. It's funny. It's a, it, it is a movie. Like There are a lot of movies you can go to and you can see and you can enjoy. You can even be really affected by them. But you don't feel any need to talk about them afterwards or whatever to sort of process them. I, this feels like me, feels to me like a movie that needs to be discussed after you've seen it just in order to kind of figure out what you saw and what it meant to you and, and everything yeah, else. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, to process the movie. It's almost like grief counseling just... Talking about it. All right. I don't remember the little things I was going to say, but I'm just going to I'm going to drop this and then we can wrap up. That I'd read an article uh, somewhere after seeing the movie about from a guy who basically said, "Oh, the headline was something like that wacky ending of." Uh, so in this article, he he basically goes, "It's not a it's not a it's not a supernatural movie or about demons or possessions or any of that. It is about yeah. the psychology." It's about the family psychology and how it's in the title, Hereditary. This woman inherited her mother's insanity. Her brother killed himself. Um, He had a fantasy that it was about demonic possession. She built on his fantasy about demonic possession and passed the whole thing down onto her own children. And his contention was that in the end, when we see him walk... You know, his body is taken over by the Tinkerbell light and he goes into the treehouse and, and we get the, the Ann Dowd's ex- exposition. His contention was that, that that's all her fantasy. That's all Tony Collette's character's fantasy of what happened. That now she, she is somehow inside him. She didn't cut her own head up. She's somewhere in that house having lost her mind. And that everything that appears to be based in demons and all of that is just uh, some sort of hallucination or some sort of um, psycho- psychotic break. Well, you know, when I was when I was a little kid, when people would in books or movies would talk about someone being haunted, I o- that's what I always thought it meant was that they are seeing and hearing things that are tangible to them but do not actually exist and they're re- we right. look at them because they're reacting to things that aren't there, and we well, think they're crazy. Yeah, I I don't feel like the guy's argument fully holds up. No, but it's an interesting inter. I mean, I don't think there are any clues. Once once she's up in the on the ceiling, behind him, I don't think there's any evidence to support that. But it's it would be it certainly would have been interesting if there was something in the movie that maybe make you think that that was a that, possible well, I, reading I, I of it. I would love it. I would love it to work perfectly both ways, but I don't yeah. think it works perfectly his way. If only forget that scene, because you could say, well, in theory you could go, the boy was imagining her, or she was imagining she was behind him or whatever. But the scene where we watch the pages of the notebook turn. Yeah. And there's no character with us. That's us watching it. Do you know what I mean? Yes, that's um, that, true. That yes. Takes, that takes their point of view out of it. And I feel like it's kind of like a cop out to just point at everything that would have been supernatural like, in some way and say, well, that's just somebody imagining it. It becomes too convenient a way to write off everything. To write off everything. Yeah. Fall yeah, yeah, yeah. Or fall neatly within your, your sort of provable thing. But um, I really didn't feel like I needed to see 
that whole last sequence up in the treehouse, particularly, we can come back and talk about this more later, you and I, either on the mic or off the mic. But I really could have just had it end with essentially the Alex Wolf character having the Tinkerbell enter his body, have him stand up and essentially look into the camera, maybe break the fourth wall or just maybe be one degree off of the fourth wall and just give the old. Hmm. And then you go, oh, now it's in him and we're out. Hmm. I didn't feel that everything had to be tied together and had to be fully explained and so on and so forth. The way that I feel the treehouse sequence was attempting to do. Yeah. But all in all, what a what a what a rich what a rich movie what a great first absolutely and I'm very excited to see what else he comes up with I hope that he's not now relegated to the horror genre completely and that if what he was trying to do was something more layered and textured and complicated that he's able to keep doing that kind of thing and exploring yeah new directions even while celebrating the history of whatever genre that he's in because I definitely. I definitely don't think all these movies that we're being struck by are accidental. No. I think it's it's all sort of in there. And that, and that's what I meant at the top of the show when I said that uh, this came from somebody who's very well-versed in these kinds of movies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I'd like to thank our listeners for joining us once again. Uh, I, I hate to, I feel like I'm letting you down by leaving you so soon. I feel, I feel we could keep going uh, on this thing uh, quite a bit longer, but we need oh, to. Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure our listeners, included. I'm sure our listeners think we could keep going too. <laughs> Absolutely. They know. Uh, but I want to thank you for listening. Uh, we are uh, now and forever <laughs> for this time. And until next time, the doctors are out. <laughs>